Welcome to the Alternative Assets Podcast with Stefan and Wyatt. This is not another podcast about stocks or venture capital. This is about the wide world of investment opportunities that aren't discussed as much. Our website and newsletter is at alternativeassets.club where you can find a transcript of this episode and many more unique investment ideas worth exploring. Now, let's dive in. Hey everyone, I'm here today with Michael Wenner from Masterworks, the premier platform that allows anyone to invest in blue chip contemporary art. So if you follow the space, you've probably heard of Masterworks as they've been doing a phenomenal job of getting their name out there. And uh, Michael is one of the guys behind that. He's the vice president of marketing at Masterworks. So today we're going to talk all things Masterworks and all things contemporary art market. With that said, Michael, glad to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, if any of my ads have been chasing you around the internet, I apologize. They definitely have. Yeah, you've uh, you've been doing a phenomenal job getting your your name out there. It seems like almost every couple of days, uh, you know, someone uh, new talks about because um, you know, I tell them what we do at Alternative Assets, and they say, "Oh yeah, I've I've seen some ads for artwork lately." I'm like, "Up, oh, that's Masterworks." Yeah, there we go. So, how did you get involved with Masterworks? So I've been around the alternative investment space for a while. I worked in you know, traditional finance doing sales and trading for about five years, then transitioned over to the fintech space, specifically investment fintech companies. So I started out at Yield Street, which is a platform for uh, investing in high yield debt, doing asset classes like real estate, litigation finance, marine finance. Uh, after that, I joined EquityZen, which is a platform for investing in shares of pre-IPO tech companies, helping both shareholders get liquidity and accredited investors uh, invest in the pre-IPO technology space. And then about a year and a half ago, I joined Masterworks to run the marketing operation. You know, we were about 20 employees. We launched two or three paintings, uh, and now we're, uh, we've eclipsed about 90 employees uh, and are scaling rapidly. So from finance to fintech and to art, here I am. Very cool. Yeah, it seems like you definitely have the right background for for Masterworks. What what drew you to Masterworks specifically? I'm curious. You know, there's so many different alternative investment classes nowadays, and we kind of have the pick of the litter for us, us in the industry as far as like which direction we want to take things. So what drew you to Masterworks specifically? Like, do you have uh, a love for art? Is art in your background at all? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, the funny thing about about Masterworks and the people that really work here is very few, if not, you know, barely any of us have backgrounds in art. Uh, most of us have backgrounds in finance. Most of our sales team come from traditional broker dealer uh, houses and a lot of our technology team come from other finance companies. Um, and just across the board, we are a finance first company. And specifically to Massworks, what I think is, is really cool is that we really don't have any other competition. There are dozens of people doing democratized private real estate. There are a few players, like I mentioned, in the pre-IPO space, a lot of people in the specialty finance, a handful of people doing collectibles, there's NFTs. But in terms of blue chip, multi-million dollar art, there's just us. So I really love the idea that not only are we the only ones in the space, but 
we're also attracting people to the market. And, you know, it's not sort of a, a zero sum game as sometimes it feels like in the pre IPO space, for example, we just keep on growing and growing and, and uh, the more we contribute to the art market, the, the bigger it can get. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, first of all, I want to say it, it definitely does not come across like there aren't a, a whole ton of art experts at Masterworks. In fact, we'll get into this later, but when I go through your site and I look at all the content you've published, I feel like every single person there is, a, is an absolute master from the person who onboards you to the person who does the, um, you know, the indices. And so, yeah, I think you guys are just oozing with expertise. So that's really, really interesting to, uh, to hear. What else is interesting is that you, you think of alternative investments, right? And you know, obviously we're going through a pretty, you know, a Cambrian explosion, so to speak. Um, but there's kind of like a bifurcation between like the old alts and the new alts, right? And I look at artwork, you know, it's not like the the oldest alternative, which is probably like something like gold, right? But it goes back a long way. I mean, collecting fine art has been something for, I mean, hundreds, if not probably maybe even thousands of years. I'm not actually sure, to be honest, but it goes back a long, long way. And of course, now that has been democratized. Um, how do you feel about art's place amongst all of the different alternative investment classes that are out there now? It's a good question. So I like to think about art as the oldest, newest alternative asset class. Um, you know, this goes back to drawings in uh, when cavemen were, were painting on the walls of their caves. There's been art around, you know, since the beginning of, uh, of mankind. You know, but what's really interesting is that this is a, a $1.7 trillion asset class. And, and you compare that to private real estate, which is $1.6 trillion private equity, 3.4 trillion and private debt, just under a trillion dollars in, in market size. For private equity, there's over 9,000 PE firms, private real estate, over 500 different funds uh, and private debt, there's about 150 funds. There's only one firm securitizing art and that's us. So we've got this gigantic asset class that has just never been tapped into from the fractionalized perspective. And, and really what the art market has been over the last few decades is these billionaire art collectors, institutions, and foundations just treating the works amongst themselves. So there has been access to, to real estate in the form of REITs, you know, people doing vacation homes, you know, uh, renting out places. There's There's been ways to get access to real estate. There's been ways to get gold. What's, what's really interesting about art is that it's so, so, so big uh, and completely untapped from a fractionalized and democratized standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you think about, you know, what, what caused the Cambrian explosion and you think back to the Regulation A and the Job Jobs Act. And so the real estate was kind of the first stuff to really kind of get fractionalized. And, you know, now it's like, it's just exploded. But yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, art goes back so long and and you guys are doing a great job of bringing new people into the fold. So let's let's talk about that. So we know who the ideal fine art customer used to be, right? It's, it's definitely changed though. So who, who's the ideal Masterworks customer today? Who are you guys targeting? It's a good question. And I'll go back to something I mentioned before in terms of most of us here having a deep financial background. There is a group of people uh, our acquisitions team, who are the art experts, them along with our CEO have you know over 75 years of experience in the industry from other auction houses like Christie's and Sotheby's and, and private galleries and sales. So you know the, the way Masterworks really was founded is taking a data-driven approach to this traditionally archaic paddle-in-hand industry. 
So when we talk about expertise, the expertise that we really focusing on is taking a hedge fund, quant fund approach to a very opaque asset class. So, you know, for us, uh, I would sort of parse it out into two separate categories. One is where we are right now in the life cycle of our company is that we really focus on self-directed investors. You know, over 98% of money is managed by uh, intermediary third-party financial advisor, but there's this 2% of people that are managing their finances on their own. And we really find that that kind of person that's really uh, what we call either an innovator or an early adopter, someone that really wants to be ahead of the game with new investment opportunities is the sort of person that's been drawn to Masterworks at first. Now, now we're early in the company, so those are the kinds of people that we've seen so far. But as we grow and as word gets out about the asset class and how you know securitized and data-driven we are, that this isn't just some fad like trading cards or Pokemon cards or NFTs, that this is really decades and decades of trading volume decades of research, decades of, of data points being aggregated together, uh, we're moving from that sort of first mover to the uh, early majority of people that are, are really trying to get ahead. And to really answer your question, these are people looking for returns. These are people looking for portfolio diversity, and they want to outperform the stock market. Wow. So lots to go into there. So first of all, what, what's the stat you had? 98% versus 2%? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's about 2% of people, you know, I think it's over X amount of dollars, uh, X amount of, you know, money managing their own portfolio are doing it completely themselves. A lot of times that we find that those are the people that are going to be the most ambitious and the most driven to try to outperform the market or, you know, the, this DIY investor. But like I said, as we grow bigger, we're going to move into you know, the RIA space, financial advisor space, institutional space, because we are the only game in town when it comes to investing in art. Yeah, you are. And let's talk about courting those institutional investors. So I've noticed a push from that lately on the on the homepage. For example, I see you guys are courting institutional investors now on the homepage. I'm looking through one of your docs here, you're talking about the market size and allocation opportunity and saying that the average asset allocation for um, high net worth individuals in art, it's about 5%. And then you have a big fat 0% showing for institutions. So you're saying that essentially 0% of institutional capital is invested in art as an alternative investment. Is that correct? Yes. And you know, there's a, there's a famous story about a British company decades ago that had art on its balance sheet that ended up making a killing and having huge returns. But you know, there's no publicly traded companies or companies that are investing in art or no funds that are putting it into their endowments as a store of capital or a way to hedge uh, inflation. It just doesn't exist right now, largely because they, the idea of art as an asset class is relatively new and we're the ones pioneering it. And you look at something like, uh, you know, I don't want to draw too many parallels to us and, and to Bitcoin, but one of the large bull cases uh, for that asset class over the last year or so was institutional support. And you saw companies like Tesla and Square, uh, as well as hedge funds, come in and use that either on their balance sheet or part of their portfolio allocation strategy. And, and you saw the result of that. Not only does it bring trust and credibility to an asset class, but it provides uh, institutional support. So when there is volatility in the asset class, you're not going to see as steep declines because there are some people in there that aren't 
buying and selling every single day. He wanted a sort of a long-term strategy. We haven't come anywhere close to that uh, in our, again, we've got a small community here uh, that is growing, but they're the only ones in the space. Uh, there have been art funds in the past that have, uh, for the most part, failed, but it, we're, we're pretty much, like I mentioned, the only game in town. There's just a, you know, a few thousand people that have, uh, that have invested in art, and that's, uh, that's through Masterworks. So there's, there's a couple of items I want to touch on. This is really fascinating. The, the first is something you said a few minutes ago about, I think you used the word fad when it came to trading cards and NFTs. I have to actually push back on that. And I want to get your take because we, on one hand, like we look at the trading cards market very, very closely. That's one of the, the markets we track um, extremely closely. And there's certainly been there's a fad element to it in that there's been more price appreciation in, in the um, sports trading cards market over the past you know, four or five months and there hasn't been in decades. So th there's definitely something happening uh, from a fad standpoint there. But on the other hand, the word fad to me has too much of a negative connotation in that it, it kind of, I think it demeans it a little bit. It, I, we see the opposite. We actually see trading cards as the kind of like the gateway drug for all alternative assets, right? Like that's kind of the, the lead in for for something deeper and more, I hate to say real, but something more real, perhaps like, like fine art. I mean, really the trading cards are artwork in a way. I mean, some of them are beautiful. And so, yeah, I just wanted to push back a little bit on that and just get, get, get your take on maybe some of the tangential markets that um, are getting maybe a little bit more attention, but can also draw people in towards, towards fine art. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I should correct myself. I, I, I think I meant that more in, um, not so much in sports cards, um, but as a child of Beanie Babies and Pokemon, I have seen some of these things come and go. And, you know, I think sort of to push back on your pushback, I will say that a lot of these uh, hockey stick-like games we're seeing in the uh, sports card market is not something that you'd ever see in the art market. I think that that, maybe fat is the wrong word, but there's pockets of bubbles in the space and you would just never see something like that in the art market and i think one of the big differences i think sports cards have this as well but what we have that some of these other alternative assets may not have or other new sort of investable things like uh, collectibles i'll say is that this rich deep history of data that we've collected you know the as i mentioned our company is based on this price database what we did was we took every single auction sale that happened uh, from the last 50 years from Christie's, Phillips, Sotheby's, and we compiled it into a price database. So you can go in, you can search Picasso, Basquiat, Banksy, Cause, Chagall, whoever you want, and you can look at every single piece of art that's been sold twice at auction. So we started with this quantitative approach and we're not just going out there and buying art we think is interesting. First, we give all we give this huge price database to our data science team, and we say, find us who's uh, which artists artist markets are gaining the most momentum. Now, when we say gaining the most momentum, we're not talking about a Wayne Gretzky card that has all of a sudden doubled in the last two weeks. We're talking about something that's been seeing fourteen percent Kager over the last you know forty years. Nothing in the art market's going to go crazy. Now, we'll see some artists that have similar sale appreciations, about 40 or so percent in certain categories. But, you know, I think these spikes are huge spikes are not something you're ever going to see. So when we go to auction, we have about 40 or 50 artists that 
we're targeting at a time. And within that, we're only looking at certain time periods and colors and styles uh, uh, from that artwork. So for example, Jean-Michel Basquiat, you know, his best year was 1982. And then within 1982, he has a few different series and themes that he touches on. And within those certain themes, there's certain colors that he uses and certain characters. So when you get this niche, like that's how we're taking the approach to it. I think a lot of other companies are saying, this thing is going up, let me invest in it. And we have a very thorough process of making sure that we are only, you know, purchasing less than 1% of the art that gets offered to us uh, and really making sure that whatever we buy has a trove of data behind it. I mean, you guys are oozing with data for sure. Um, it's actually really fascinating how much data you put in compared, I'll say, to a lot of the other platforms out there with with other um, alternative investment classes. You know, what we do at Alternative Assets, we do a lot. One of the things we do is we collect a lot of data and we use that data to find mispriced, undervalued um, assets. Uh, we, we are able to, um, to grab a ton of insights from our data. We don't cover the art market at all yet. It's on the roadmap, but there's a really good reason we don't cover it yet. I'll be honest. It's because you guys are doing such a freaking tremendous, fantastic job. There's no need for any other uh, analysis yet. I mean, it's, I look through your site and it's just pouring out content data. You've got a database, full searchable database that anyone can access or members can access. You've got great insight, great commentary. So yeah, I mean, you guys are really doing the the heavy lifting here for for everyone. And I think first, I just want to say thank you. You know, I mean, it makes everything a lot easier. You know, <laughs> that's a good point. One of the things that I'm I'm very proud about that we recently released is you know we have this database. Uh, that was only limited to Masterworks members, uh, but we actually just opened it up to the public. It's just masterworks.io slash research. You can go in there, type in an artist's name and look at all these, first of all, beautiful works, but you can see everything. And what's really cool is you don't need an account or anything. You can go in, click a artist's name, click the painting. And then once you click it, you can click into an Excel that will show you every single piece uh, about that auction sale. It'll show you the size of the painting, the colors, the, the bids, the estimated range, everything, the year, provenance, uh, historical data, notes, auction stuff. It's truly amazing. And, you know, we really look at it as analogous to the what, what Case Schiller did for, for real estate. You had this huge asset class. And when you just start putting numbers behind it, you can really see more about the market itself and, and the economy overall. You know, the art market, you know, for better or for worse, is really a gauge of the, uh, you know, top 0.001% in that the growth of that proportion of the economy, because unless you have the people that are buying these artworks are able to afford a $10 million Picasso. So the more they're able to trade this back and forth is really reflection on how that part uh, of the economy is growing. And as I'm sure you've seen with a lot of this wealth inequality, it, it's only getting worse. But uh, like I said, now that we're sort of able to bring new buyers into that market, we'll have more people be able to take advantage uh, of that rise in price. Yeah, nobody's doing anything close to what you guys are doing from a data standpoint in any of the markets we track. It's, it really is uh, commendable. And I think what you do is it, you make it easier for the retail investor, right? Who is a little maybe nervous about you know, dropping 10, 15, 20 grand into a painting that they probably don't know a whole lot about. You know, you guys really hold their hands through data, through insights and through your through your onboarding. And that's actually what I'd like to talk about next. So 
one of the things that surprised me when I first signed up for a Masterworks account was you can't just start investing. Every single user, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe every single user essentially goes through a at least one and I think sometimes two personal onboarding calls with, with team members. Um, tell us a little bit about that onboarding strategy that you have that we've seen with other companies do this. You know, Superhuman famously did this um, when they launched a few years ago. And I think we're seeing it more and more. Tell us a little bit about that, why you do it and how it's worked for you. That's a great question. And it was something that I'll say I was skeptical of when I when I joined on. I, I thought this is 2021. Well, I guess 2021 I joined on, but like the days of needing to talk to someone, like I can order McDonald's from my couch without interacting with a human being. Why do I need to talk to someone on the phone to invest in art? And what's interesting is that we found that because this is a brand new asset class, because this isn't just uh, something semi-digestible like real estate, that people didn't really know what it was or what we were doing or honestly, if we were even legitimate. So there were some people that were you know, early on before we had the phone call were putting in tens of thousands of dollars without talking to a human being. I know I personally would have a tough time doing that or at least want some live chat support or you know, want some emails back and forth. So our users and, and most of them are very high net worth want to talk to someone before allocating that big a, a chunk of their money. They're used to you know, when they are investing, having a white glove service. So we really wanted to make sure people that were putting in a lot of money into a brand new investment actually could talk to a human being. And, and what we found was that they had so many questions. They wanted that reassurance and they wanted to learn. No one on earth has been able to invest in fractionalized art until we came along. And we want to make sure we had our, our bases covered and they were appreciative of that. On the other side is it's suitability for two reasons. One, we don't want people going in over their heads and investing too much of their investment portfolio. Just from a risk mitigation standpoint, we don't want you know a Robinhood situation where we're having people putting in you know too much money, too too high of an allocation of the portfolio. And the flip side, we want to make sure that you know people are putting in a portion of their portfolio that makes sense. You know, City had a report that came out that suggested that um, clients allocate between one and eight percent of their portfolio, depending on their risk tolerance to art. So we really want to get an idea of the investor's goals, risk tolerance, so we can allocate them accordingly and give them either not so much recommendations, but guide them to the difference and, and teach them the difference between investing in cause, who's a living artist who may have a higher appreciation rate, but a, a greater loss rate versus someone like a Monet, who's like your Apple blue or more like an Intel blue chip stock in the Dow will gain, you know, 8% a year reliable. You're, you know, it's very, uh, a lot of his art doesn't lose money over time, but versus a, a relatively, you know, like I said, a living artist that they may have different features. So everyone's got a different risk appetite, time horizon. Uh, so we really wanted to, to make sure everyone was, was covered and understood what they were getting into. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think when you're pushing the envelope forward like you guys are, and you're basically the only ones doing what you do to the degree that you do it, that's for sure. It's, it is a great way to answer questions that people have, but I think it does something else. I think it actually makes them more invested. I mean, figuratively speaking, invested, right? It's, it, it makes it more real when you have an onboarding call with someone as opposed to just a fly-by-night idea. Oh, yeah, I saw your ad in a newsletter or something, and I'm just going to sign up. And what's probably going to happen is, well, nothing. They're probably not going to invest a dime because there's a million options out there. And, you know, what makes this one any better? And, but I think the onboarding call really makes them feel 
you know, a lot more, yeah, just invested in the whole process. And I'm sure it, it, it helps with your, uh, your numbers as well. So it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, we do definitely miss out on a lot of people who want that self-serve uh, experience and just want to click and invest. And that's something we're real, we're willing to miss out on um, just because we, you know, we want to be safe. We want to mitigate risk. As you said, we don't really want people that don't understand or don't care. We don't want someone just to click a box, put in a thousand dollars and, you know, not really uh, understand what they're getting into. That's, that's not what we're interested in. We want people to understand what they're allocating into, what percentage, uh, and how to think about returns and you know risk-adjusted returns uh, as well. Right. Yeah. You're not you're not interested in vanity metrics. You're interested in real people making real investments and helping them succeed. Yeah. And I think a lot of times, you know, this transfer from traditional finance into tech, a lot gets missed along the way. This is people's money, their livelihood, their their savings, what they're passing on to their children. Uh, you know, especially our users is much more high net worth you know, and older, and they're not the ones that are going to, you know, be flipping shares on Robinhood day after day. This is a serious investment for them. So we want to make sure that our onboarding process matches that. Absolutely. I mean, hey, look, I, I dumped my entire 2020 IRA allocation into uh, Masterworks through Alto IRA. So yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, <laughs> let's make sure this, this goes somewhere in the long run. Cool. So how, how would you describe the, the art market today? And what market trends are you seeing right now? And how has it changed over time? Uh, particularly interested in maybe some trends around some, some of the sub-markets, the sub-art markets. Uh, how would you describe the, the changing marketplace? That's a good question. I will say that we really focus on one specific vertical within the art market, and that's contemporary art. And that's defined as art produced after World War II. These are from contemporary artists you know, that you've heard of Picasso, Warhol, Basquiat. And again, it goes up until today. So, so that's, that's the larger market we play in. But within that, every single artist has a different market. And the first thing we look at with, with, when we're screening any artist is what percent of the time does their art lose money from one auction to the next? So, you know, you've heard of someone like, you know, a Damien Hirst or a Jeff Koons, who are huge artists. But if you look at their returns, you look at their loss rates, they are not great. And a lot of times people that have invested in uh, a Jeff Koons work over a certain dollar amount have actually lost money. So we look at someone like Basquiat, who I believe has, uh, you know, single digit loss rates. And so we're really focusing not just on contemporary art, we're looking at individual artist markets, then within those specific artist markets, specific years and styles, et cetera. So some of the trends that that we're seeing, um, you know, right now, two two artists that are that are really hot, you know, as I mentioned, is Jean-Michel Basquiat. You know, we look at something called cultural significance. A lot of the themes that he was, you know, creating art about racial justice, civil rights are super important today. Um, and we're seeing that the themes and the motifs of his art are becoming um, super important and are being reflected uh, in his auction sales as well. And then we have someone like Banksy. You know, we saw last year, you know, one of his uh, pieces, but it's a picture of Parliament, but it's all monkeys. And it set a record uh, for him. So about uh, $12 million, you know, and it was much bigger than his, his previous record. And, you know, that was great. Then along came a a sketch he did, a stencil work that he, uh, there was a viral video of him doing it 
donated uh, to a hospital in London during COVID. It was a very nice picture of a, a little boy playing with dolls. And you see in the background, there's a Spider-Man and a Batman he's not playing with, but he's holding up a picture of a doctor or a nurse and playing with that. And Banksy gave to this hospital, you know, thank you to frontline workers. You know, this is at the height of the pandemic and it was, you know, amazing. That work got uh, auctioned off for charity in just a span of a few months, uh, sold for $24 million. So that now becomes, you know, another data point that we put into our database and you've seen his market is just, you know, it's very rare to see something, you know, like that happen. I think you have these culturally significant works, you know, talking about race in the past. And then now we're talking about COVID uh, right now with Banksy that people realize are very important moments in time and how they're going to define our culture. So, you know, people are seeing Basquiat as, uh, you know, an artist who's going to be remembered for decades and decades. Uh, and that really drives prices and value as well. It's really interesting. It's It sounds like you guys are looking to preserve value fundamentally um, in the pieces that you choose. And like take Basquiat, for example, his works are not likely to lose money. He doesn't have the same public derision as like Jeff Koons. Anyways, Basquiat definitely doesn't have that. The other artists you work with pieces, they don't have that. So it sounds like value preservation is kind of the name of the game here. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I would think that, you know, we we look at loss rates. We want to make sure that the art that we are buying as a is not going to lose money. And then we look at momentum. Um, you know, we will look at, you know, a series of very similar works. So we're not just taking Basquiat's work in general, we're taking whatever offering we're doing, and we're looking at maybe 20 to 30 other works that are very similar in terms of size, uh, cultural significance, color, and we are comparing it that way. And that's how we can make sure to uh, have a different price appreciation profile. So yeah, it's a combination of capital preservation and price appreciation. Okay. So we talked a lot about how you guys source your art in terms of what you look for, cultural significance, preservation of value. In one of your docs, I can't remember which one, but you mentioned supply scarcity. And that, that was kind of interesting to me. I didn't, I didn't really realize that was a, a thing with contemporary art, especially. I mean, with, with traditional art, obviously, there's literally no more supply. But, you know, I, I was surprised to, to read about supply scarcity with contemporary art. So given that scarcity, and I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on that scarcity, but within that, given that, how are you able to acquire um, these pieces for, for consignment? T- tell us a little bit about the process of actually doing the, the actual sourcing. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So I'll first touch on scarcity. You know, plain and simple, Pablo Picasso is never going to produce a piece of art. Neither is Jean-Michel Basquiat or Keith Haring. There's never going to be another one produced. And so you have a for Jackson Pollock, you have a fixed amount. And, and other, you know, you can always build more buildings for real estate, or um, you know, there's always going to be another cryptocurrency coming along. You can print more dollars. But you know, as a, a real asset uh, and as a hedge to inflation, there is 100% scarcity value in what, in what we're doing. And as these new artists have come along, let's say Banksy or Cause, they understand this dynamic. They understand that if they start flooding the market with more of these works, it will diminish the value of their market over time, something that other artists, Coons and Hearst may have learned the, the hard way. So you're not going to see Banksy putting out a hundred different artworks tomorrow and then a thousand the next week. He understands that there is scarcity value if he wants to keep prices high in this market. So 
that's scarcity value. And, and another thing is that, which is super important, the supply is constantly decreasing as most of these works end up in museums and institutions which have provisions to never sell them again. So once they're moved from uh, private into public hands, they're off the market indefinitely. So you will just constantly have Jackson Pollock's and, and Basquiat's just in diminishing supply, um, you know, which is something we're uh, looking forward to uh, in the Ethereum community and just making sure that not only is it a fixed supply, but it's constantly declining. And sorry, to, to answer your other point about sourcing. So, you know, we are, again, we start off with this uh, fundamentally quantitative approach, uh, and then we have our acquisitions team going to auctions, working with private galleries. Uh, and because we become uh, one of the top buyers in the art market, we are getting offered works from everyone and anyone, which is, gives us leverage uh, to get the best deals possible. So we're seeing dozens and dozens and dozens of examples offered to us on a daily basis. And that helps us be able to pick um, you know, the cream of the crop. And when you source a piece, it's almost all consignment, correct? Or are you doing full buyouts as well? So we purchase every uh, piece of art um, through balance sheet capital. We own the entire thing. Oh, interesting. You do full ownership. I, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, we, we own it 100%. Uh, we do a regulation A offer or put it in an LLC, put it through a, a reg A offering, and then investors own a piece of that LLC, which only owns the painting. And is there ever any retained ownership from the original owner or the most recent owner, I should say? Uh, there is not. No, we, we buy it out completely. And, you know, for example, we do have one uh, one of our Banksy's in the Amsterdam Museum of Contemporary Art, and we're hoping to do more of that as uh, more museums open back up so we can get it back out into the public. Interesting. Gotcha. Yeah, sorry, I didn't realize that. That's cool. And then so does each piece get appraised at the time of the purchase? It's something I've always wondered, like, what, you know, when you file the SEC docs, um, that requires a, a reappraisal for the purpose of the documents. Is that correct? Yeah, so we're getting it appraised before we purchase it during, uh, you know, at the time of the purchase. And we're also getting it appraised quarterly as well. So we just came out with a whole new batch of uh, appraisals. So I'd encourage you to check your portfolio and to see how, um, how your art is done. Well, I have checked and granted, it was only a few months ago I made this uh, injection of capital into artwork for the first time, but it hasn't moved yet. And so I actually wanted to talk about that. So how often do you recalibrate the, the fair market value of, of each piece? And, and what, what kind of governs the rules for the, you know, the cadence of how often you're kind of updating prices? Yeah. So for appraisers, we use third-party appraisers. We have our own internal metrics for appraisals, but the ones that you see uh, are, are done by third parties as to make it as unbiased as possible. Gotcha. Okay. So that's not an internal appraising that's that's uh, all done externally unbiased third parties yeah so when you see appraised value on the website that is that is not us that is uh, a third party that we've hired uh to do that appraisal and does that third party or those third parties do they they kind of help add to your database i would imagine right i mean you, you take a very data-driven quant fund approach like you said you have a tremendous amount of research i would imagine those appraisals just feed into that database which you you fundamentally own and of course you know disseminate to the community it's actually interesting. So no, our database is only compromised of uh, things that have been bought and sold at auction. You know, about 50% of the art market is uh, done privately. Uh, so we can't get any data on that. But everything that's done in auction, 
uh, we record uh, and put in. So it must be bought and sold publicly to do that. And, and the reason why no one else has this is because we digitized it. We took 50 years of paper records from all these auction houses, which they were putting out in Baum Tree. You may have seen Sotheby's has their fall sale catalog uh, and they will publish, uh, I think now it's digital, but for you know decades ago, it was all done by print. So when the company first started, the way that this uh, the price database was formed was physically getting, collecting all these different manual books and writing down by hand and putting them into uh, spreadsheets, all these different return profiles. Uh, so it was a very long and hard process, but that's the basis of it. And it only gets up. So it only gets updated after every uh, live public auction sale, which we monitor almost every single major one live. It's really interesting. It, it is definitely critical to have data on your side as a weapon in if you're if you're going to fight this battle. And it's interesting how many companies have kind of come from that angle. I look at like Collectible, for example, and they started as... I mean, the history is a little interesting, but they, they started as a uh, basically a data play for um, the trading cards market. And then they kind of like leveraged that. And that's still one of their their big advantages today. And, and you know, you guys are, you know, all that data you're saying is the publicly available stuff is the only stuff you can get access to, basically, because what, what percentage of, of art sales would you say are private? Is it most of it? I think it's about 50-50. 50-50. Okay. Okay. So half of it is a little opaque and no one really has access to that data. But the data you do have access to, that's what ends up in your database. That's the public auction data that th that's that's what ends up in your database. Yeah. And, you know, we really only go after artists where we feel like we have a comfortable enough amount of data. You know, if someone's only been at auction a handful of times, you know, we can't really make a, a decision that's statistically significant and that we have confidence with. So we're going after long established artists that have a history uh, of selling works at auction. Now, do you think that the you said that, you know, the art market is less conducive to bubbles compared to some other more volatile asset classes and that makes a lot of sense. But do you think the fact that retail capital is, you know, starting to pour into alts to a pretty insane degree, you know, is that skewing the market at all? Do you think it will push valuations up by virtue of the fact that their demand is just, you know, up so highly? Or is that that's something you guys haven't been concerned with? So the people that own these multi-million dollar artworks are not going to be your typical panic sellers or trend following buyers. They are, in terms of a drawdown, someone that is able to afford a $10 million Basquiat is not going to go and sell that Basquiat the next day. And even if they try to, it's just such a slow moving process that it, you know, it takes weeks to get things done and appraised. And they would never do that because if you do try and panic sell, it's going to be pretty obvious that you're panic selling and you'll get a very bad value. So it's not like, oh, the market is, the Dow is down 700 points. Let me sell. It's pretty public facing. So, you know, no one's going to be uh, caught with their tail between their legs and do that. And even if they tried to, art isn't going to be the first thing to go given its illiquid nature. And then in terms of retail, maybe pushing prices up, the only way they'd be able to do that is through us. And we're, we're a you know, drop in the bucket in terms of the total art market at this point. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what do you see happening for the future of the, well, I'll talk about the, the future of Masterworks. I want to get your take on that. But to start, I want to know like what the future of the art market holds in your opinion. Like where do you, where do you kind of see this going in the next, I want to say 
five to 10 years, what does the market unfolding look like to you? I wish I had a cooler answer, but I think that this market is still, you know, stuck, you know, in in a very old age. Most of this is still done at Sotheby's and Christie's and with a handful of the big galleries, you know, David Zorn, your Gozian. This is a very old school market. However, that gives us a great unfair advantage because we're the only ones using data and quantitative analysis. These big players are, are not. Um, so I don't think this is going to be shooting ahead in technological terms uh, like other asset classes that we've seen. We've still got a long, long way to go for uh, technology to come in. That's interesting. I'll be honest. I agree. I think you know you think art as an alternative asset, and it's it's kind of one of the more geez, how do I say this? It's a little little older, a little stuffier, so to speak, a little more uh, recalcitrant, hesitant to change. There's also a lot of legacy kind of investors, I think, in the the art market compared to some of the newer alts. Um, that can be a good thing and a bad thing for sure. But you guys are clearly in a great position to, you know, capitalize on that because, you know, you are pushing the envelope forward and you're way ahead of everyone else in terms of data and, and commentary for that matter. So I think, yeah, obviously you guys are in a great position moving forward. So let's talk about Masterworks' future you know, how, how do you see the company unfolding as opposed to the art market at large? And particularly, I'm actually curious about your thoughts on NFTs. You know, there's definitely a hype cycle with NFTs. It's up, it's down. I'd love to get your thoughts on that, especially as it relates to digital art, right? We've seen some very big, big sales in, in, of digital art. I mean, some of the biggest art sales ever, period, are NFT art. And that's only in the past few months. So in the history of art, well, at least public sales that we know of, you know, one of the big, like the Beeple sale at 78 million is, you know, basically one of the biggest art sales just in history, period. So I, I am really curious, what are your thoughts on NFT digital art and how that relates to the art market at large and Masterworks in particular? So I'll start by saying you see a lot of these different alternative platforms try to they start with one thing and they grow and do something else. They'll start with a traditional fund and then they'll move to a crypto fund. They'll start with real estate and then they'll do something else. They'll start with collectibles and then they'll do wine. We are focused on one thing and one thing only. We have absolutely zero plans to do anything except for blue chip contemporary art. That's it. And that's it only for, for a very long time. In terms of NFTs, you know, I'd really say that there's this moment in time that we are living through where art in the crypto world overlap, but I don't think that that's going to stand the test of time. I think that you're going to see NFTs be used for, you know, more utility purposes. Um, But in terms of artwork, I I just don't think that that's going to be around for much longer. Interesting. Yeah. No one really knows. Mm -hmm. Anyone who pretends to know is is, uh, uh, full of crap. I mean, this stuff is definitely unfolding pretty quick. I don't think anyone could have predicted the rise of NFTs, uh, you know, at least not to the degree that it happened over the, the past five, six months. So I don't think anyone's really in a great position to say that they're inevitable or they're the new norm or anything like that. It, it's definitely interesting to watch. I will say um, some of the big NFT sales are uh, especially eye-opening, but I like your approach. You're saying, look, we do one thing, we do it well. We're the first to do it. We're basically the only ones to do it. And that's all there is to it. And we're going we're gonna to keep riding this horse. Cool. Well, you guys are in, in great shape. I love what you do. I love the data transparency, especially. 
you know, nobody knows where to begin in these worlds, right? And that's that's what we try to do, um, you know, at Alternative Assets is is educate people and bring them into the fold. But you guys are do of all the platforms, I have to say, I mean, you guys, I think, are just doing the absolute best job of educating the market, um, bringing people into the fold, empowering them with data and insights. So thank you for for pushing everything forward, and thanks for doing such a great job. Of course, um, you know, I, I think that. Uh, unlike other real estate classes, I'd say maybe except for trading cards, um, it, it's also just a, a, a beautiful asset class. I mean, we get to see these things at the Met and MoMA and, you know, admire them. And it really causes a, you know, a feeling of the sublime and, and an emotional relationship. Uh, and so to be able to, you know, I think we're seeing this trend of people aren't just investing, you know, people aren't investing in Tesla because you know, they, they believe in the company, but they're doing it to be part of a, a community at large. Same thing with AMC, GameStop. It's a connection to something larger. And so, you know, we don't have a lot of people that are coming to us saying, you know, I really love Banksy. But once they do, they're able to to have a connection that you're able, you know, to, to be a part of, unlike a, an ETF or a, a bond. And so it's something that you want to talk about and you want to tell your friends about. And so we, I see this uh, as really, um, you know, a, a very important part of people's portfolio, having things that they believe in. And, and luckily for us, unlike other asset classes, ours has a pretty decent rate of return with, with contemporary art returning 14% per year over the last you know, 25 or so years. So definitely exciting time, exciting place and, and a thing you can get excited about. Indeed. Yeah. Alts are definitely becoming very emotional and the emotional aspect is huge. You know, they, they didn't used to be. Alts used to be kind of boring and a way to kind of hedge against uh, volatility and equity market. And now it's something completely different, totally different animal. Emotion plays a huge part in it. And there's probably no asset class that's more emotional, frankly, than, than artwork. I can't, I really cannot think of a single asset class that has more emotion baked in than artwork. And that, that includes, that includes trading cards and, and collectibles. So yeah, totally agree. Spot on. Well, Michael, thank you once again. Uh, this has been an awesome chat. I really appreciate you coming on the show and telling us all about Masterworks. And uh, thank you once again. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care, bud. Thanks for tuning in. We sure hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please be sure to subscribe and give us a nice review for this podcast. It means a lot. And remember, you can find a transcription of this episode along with all past issues of our weekly newsletter at our website, alternativeassets.club. See you next time.